Um, have, I wanted to show you a uh, picture of a place that is kind of like my home away from home. Um, have you seen this place before? Okay, so I know everybody in the house ain't a Georgia fan, but real quickly, uh, real quickly, uh, there's a place in, 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 in the state of Georgia called Athens, and uh, I like to call it Athens Town, okay? And um, Athens Town has about 115,000 people that live in it. I actually wrote the number down. I, I Google searched it this week. It's 115, 452 people that live in Athens. But every fall, I take uh, some time on Saturdays to take my kids and my family, my wife. We go over. What's funny is if you looked in my closet, there's not a stitch of orange in my closet. Um, we don't wear that color. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> we wear red and black. And uh, I even got red shoes, look like clown shoes, but I'm going to wear my red shoes, I'm going to pull out my red and black, and we're headed to Athens Town for the games, you know? There happens to be a football team that plays over there, they're, they're halfway decent. And um, yesterday, for example, we went over there and played a team uh, called Southern University from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It was raining, it was a wet day, but it was a good day, and, um, and there was... That the house was pretty packed. I was amazed at how many people showed up to Athens town. Now, what's interesting is folks from Louisiana came because their school was there, and folks from Atlanta are all over Georgia, South Georgia. All, all these folks come into Athens, and what's amazing is there is a, a venue there called Sanford Stadium that can hold, ready for this, 92,746 people. Sometimes it holds a little less than that. Sometimes we actually pack them in a little bit more. Now, this upcoming Saturday is a very special day that's going to be in Athens town because we have some folks from the state of Alabama who are going to be coming over to Athens town. And we're going to baptize them in a little bit of the culture of Athens town, all right? And I'm already believing what's going to happen. We're going to be eating elephant sandwiches and... Uh, and the red and black's going to devour the crimson tide, all right? But here's the cool thing. I want, you to, I want you to envision. In the center of this town that only has 115,000 people is a stadium that can hold 90, almost 93,000 people. Almost everybody in the whole town can come to the stadium, you know? And that, when on those Saturdays, those special Saturdays in the fall that I love to go to, on those Saturdays, it's like all of a sudden Athens changes, you know? Because the red and black, those who bleed red and black, they come into town because they are going to watch their beloved dogs. I know we got tech fans in the house, one. And I know we got, uh, and I know we got an, at least one or two Alabama guys. And I saw somebody wearing their Florida shirt. Florida finally won this week. Um, uh, <laughs> We even got people from Purdue, right, Fred? Yeah, Fred, he wants to represent the North. Yeah, did you just say go dogs? Oh, boiler up, okay. I never, people around here don't even know what that means. Anyway, what in the world does any of that have to do with what I want to read from the Scripture this morning? Well, you know what? I want to I tell you something. I want to I, I read a Scripture to you this today, that if you hold Athens Town and Sanford Stadium in your mind, and you think about all those people that can fit in that stadium, and you think about a story that I think is revolutionary, that is paradigm shifting for you and for me. We're going to read a story this morning that I just think is a cool, awesome story in Scripture. And, uh, and I think it can really help us understand implications for who we are and who the church is supposed to be and how we are supposed to live every day 
of our lives. So if you got your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Now, each week in this three-part series, we're going to read a different scripture. And uh, today we're going to dive into a story kind of right in the middle of the book of Acts. You remember what's going on in Acts. The, Jesus has died, been resurrected, and the new church, the birth of the church is starting. It's incredible stuff happening. There's this guy who was, a, uh, who was kind of a religious zealot. He was, a, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a very smart, very, very smart guy, very, very religious guy. But he was actually a devout uh, uh, believer that Jesus was a liar, and he was going around killing people who said they followed Jesus, and all of a sudden, he has a, a, a moment with Jesus on a, a road. He's blinded. Now, this guy, his name was Saul. He has become Paul, and people know this guy because he's a smart guy, and, and he's, he's, uh, his, the word about him is getting around. He is on a missionary journey, and he's actually going and spreading the news that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now, a lot of people had not heard this yet, okay? A lot of folks had never heard the name Jesus. They never even heard that he had been resurrected from the dead or what the implications of that were. So pick it up with me in Acts 13, verse, one, uh, verse 13. Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, that's a little coastal town, they, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. And, and on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. Now, I want you to get this picture. Um, they come in, they, Paul and, and some companions of his, they're traveling, they're trying to spread the good news of what Jesus has done by coming back to life and forgiving people of their sins, and they go to a town they've never been in before uh, called Pisidian Antioch. And that's a little coastal town. We say that it's little. Scholars actually at the time believe there's about 50,000 people in this town, and they do what they always do. Paul's, this is what Paul does. He always goes to church first before he goes out to the market because he thinks that's what God would have him to do. He goes to the synagogue first. And so he comes in and he sits down. I picture it very much like a worship service today, all right? Now, now okay, let me back up. Paul didn't drive a car, all right? He didn't drive a car to worship, but he came to worship. And very much like you did, he saw people on the way in. I don't think he had donuts or coffee, but he, he probably met people as he came in. They were probably meeting him, introducing, finding out who he was. They probably, you know, found out what his name was. They were, oh, who are you? And have you ever been to a synagogue before, you know? Welcome, we're glad you're here. That kind of moment, they're, they're meeting him for the first time. And then somehow or the other, they find out that this is the very guy that everybody started to talk about. This is the guy who was Saul that was killing Christians, and now he's Paul, and this is a big guy. He and his buddies are here to worship with us today. So watch what happens. It says, uh, they, they, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Now, here's kind of how that works. Um, I've been in church before, and somebody special came to church, either a religious leader or the, the mayor of the city or something, and, and we've got some wonderful leaders in this church, and they'll come, I'm up there worshiping, you know, they'll kind of elbow me for a minute, they'll go, uh, somebody's here today, and they'll tell me who's here, right? And, and sometimes um, I acknowledge that, and we have them stand, or we honor them, or whatever it was. This would be tantamount to somebody coming up to me in, 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 in the middle of worship service and kind of elbowing me and saying, guess who's here? Billy Graham is here, okay? Now, can you imagine Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or one of these guys coming into our worship service just kind of sitting in the back over there, right? Now, what happens is these leaders, they, once they realize who Paul is and they come up and they, they tell the leaders of the synagogue who's got the service plan, they say, guess who's here? 
when it's time for them to share the word, they get up, they read the scriptures, and then they kind of they say, we have somebody special with us today. This is who that is. They introduce Paul. They introduce his buddies. And then just like you read it, they said, if there's a word that you have for us that you're here today, we, we'd love to hear it, okay? Now, what's interesting is maybe they don't know Paul because Paul's going to stand up and say, yeah, I got a word for you, all right, <laughs> which is kind of cool, all right? So watch what happens. Um, they say, uh, please speak if you have a word. And then standing up, Paul motioned with his hand, and he said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles, you might want to underline that, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now, this is interesting because in the synagogue, most people only think that there were Jews there, but that's not the case. Jews would have been in the synagogue, but there would have also been what they called God-fearing Gentiles. And these were people who weren't Jewish by their race or by their history or by their lineage, but they, they believed in one God. They believed in the God of the Jews, the God-fearing. They believed in the God of the Jews, and oftentimes was the case They tried to live their life, even though they were Gentiles, by the Jewish moral code, okay? What the Jews were trying to do, and so they were invited in, even though they were Gentiles, they weren't part of the chosen, you know? They were invited in. So when Paul stands up, he motions to his people, and he says, to the Israelites and to those who are the Gentiles here, I have a word for you. And he starts to share the word. I don't have time to read all the scripture this morning, but basically what he begins to do is he begins to lay out and narrate a history of the events in the way that God has worked throughout time. How he worked in the, in the heart of his people by rescuing them from the Exodus. How he worked in the hearts of the judges. How he brought them, uh, he brought them uh, prophets that would tell about the coming Messiah. He starts telling them and narrating for them a history, which by the way, is their own history, right? He's telling them, but some people, the Jews, they would be hearing this, they knew this story. They knew the story of how they were prophets and they had foretold them. But others who were Gentiles, they would be hearing some of this maybe for the very first time. As he ta- and they, they were really enjoying it, by the way. They were really, they were getting what he was telling them as he was telling them this history lesson. They, they were pumped about what he was sharing. Now watch what happens. He, he, he's, as he tells the story, then he moves into who Jesus was. And he tells them the good news of Jesus. The Bible says this. He, he, get in, he gets into his message and he says, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses. Watch these words. To our people. They are witnessing to our people that he came back to life. And then he goes on to say this. He said, now we tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us. He's given them the message of Jesus. He's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Now, if you were hearing this message for the first time, in your mind, if you're hearing Paul share the history story, and then now saying, Jesus came, he died, he was the Messiah, and we, he came back to life. Not only this, a lot of people saw him, and now those people are going out telling that he came back. If you were one of the people who were hearing that story for the first time, you would be thinking in your mind, really? Are you serious? I mean, it would be like a new understanding of resurrection and the possibilities of Messiah on planet Earth, and you had missed it. You didn't get the headline. And now you were hearing the headline that the Messiah had come for the very first time, right? 
And so he tells them, this is the good news. God promised it to our ancestors. Now he's fulfilled it for us in our lifetime, the children of our moms and our dads and our grandmas and granddads. Now watch this. I love this. In Acts 13, 38, he says, therefore, my friends. (laughs) Now, he didn't really know these people. It's the first time he'd ever been there before, you know? But that was a nice thing to say. Um, therefore, my friends, my, my Jewish brothers and sisters and my Gentile friends, he says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And then he says, through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Now, some people would be going, what? These people were doing, they were doing the religious hoops. They were doing the religious law. They were following the moral code. They were doing everything they could to be accepted by God. And he's saying, listen, all you got to do is believe that he is the Messiah and you can be forgiven of every sin, every sin. Now, watch what happens. It says, um, through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. I like to think of it this way. He knows who he's talking to. He's talking to people who are kind of, when it comes to their spiritual life, they're working, they're striving, they're trying to follow all these rules and rituals. But yet there's probably in every one of them an emptiness that you guys know happens when you're doing it all, you know, on your own energy. You're doing it all the, because you feel like you got to, Right? And I'm sure that there was a, this good word is falling on the ears of people who have been striving for their own salvation for a very long time. And now they're hearing for the very first time, the Messiah has come. You don't need to, you don't need, you've you've sought the Mosaic law, you've sought the law of Moses for a long time, and it was never able to obtain forgiveness of your sins. Guess what now? All you got to do is believe in Jesus and receive eternal life through him. By the way, every once in a while, I, I like to read j- different translations, and I know you've noticed that because many times when I'm preaching, I'll, I'll read from different translations. I read this one verse that I read, um, Acts 13, verse 38 through 39, in the message this week, and I wanted to read it to you here. I didn't put it in your outline, but just read it with me real quickly. From Acts 13, the message, which is a paraphrased version, and it says this, I want you to know, my very dear friends, there's those words again, I want you to know, my very dear friends, that it is on account of this resurrected Jesus that the forgiveness of your sins can be promised. Now, hear these words. It says this. He accomplishes in those who believe everything that the law of Moses could never make good on. But everyone who believes in this raised up Jesus is declared good and right and whole before God. I want you to hear those words again. Everyone who believes in Jesus is declared good and right and whole in God. I want you to think about it. Where were you the first time that you ever heard the message that there was a Savior named Jesus, and if you believed in him, he would make everything in your life good and right and whole? Do you remember where you were the first time you ever heard that? I can tell you for me. I remember uh, I had gone to a Bible study. This first time, I probably heard it before, but the first time that ever got into my soul, I, I heard about this thing called Young Life, and it was about three neighborhoods over from mine, and I, went with, I was invited by some of my high school buddies to go to this thing called Young Life, and we went to somebody's house. We didn't go to a church, 
we went to a house, and in the house, all these teenagers showed up. And there was just like a couple of adults, but really it was a bunch of teenagers. And we started, they were singing, not very good, they were singing though. And, and, and then after it was over, somebody gave a message. And the message was very simple. It was just about Jesus. I don't, I don't really remember the context of it all, but for the first time, it, it, I heard the message maybe in a different way, and it got down into my soul, and it was almost like those, can you put back up those words again, Tom? It was for the first time that really it began to get on my heart that all I really have to do is believe in this resurrected Jesus, and all my striving, because I was working hard, you know, I was, I'm a performer by nature, you know, I wanted to do well, and every, all of us want to, we don't want to disappoint somebody, we want to perform with our lives, we want to accomplish things, right, we want to get things done, that's who I was. And all of a sudden, I realized it's not about that. It's really about believing in the raised up Jesus. And if I do that, then everything can, in my life can be made good and right and whole. And it wasn't that night that I gave my life to Jesus. But I'll tell you, light bulb went on that night. And I wanted to know more. Now, what's interesting is, as Paul is sharing this message about the raised up Jesus, that's exactly what happens. He doesn't have an altar call and say, hey, come up here, all of you who want to have Jesus. He doesn't do that. He just proclaims a message. And, and light bulbs start going off all around the room. As a matter of fact, the Bible says when he was done, as a matter of fact, let's read it. The Bible says when he was done, they come up to him and they say, you've got to come back. Don't leave. You've got to come back next Sunday. We want to hear part two of the message, okay? So watch what happens. It says, so as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. So they were saying, come back to church next, next week. We want to hear more of this because you've piqued our interest about this resurrected Jesus. And watch what happened. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God, not in the law, but to continue in the grace of God. And I love this part. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Did you get that? Paul showed up to a church that scholars believe there was somewhere between 100 to 200 people there at church that day, okay, at the synagogue. And by the next Sunday, by the next Sunday, when they said, just stay with us, by that Sabbath that was upcoming, actually the Sabbath for them was on Saturday, but don't get caught up there. Um, that by, the next, by the next week, the town, scholars tell us, in that town there's about 50,000 people. There were almost 50,000 people who showed up to hear the message. Now, that would be tantamount to a church in Athenstown, Georgia, all right? Having such a phenomenal worship service, right, where they heard a message that was so inspiring and so light bulb shifting for them, where all of a sudden they said, we got to have you back next Sunday. And they went out and they told everybody in the town, 200 people, went to everybody in the town, and they came back, and almost the whole town came to church the next week. Now, when you do your math on that, by the way, 200 people trying to reach out and grab almost 50,000, that'd be like every one of you in this room here today going away, and you bring back 250 people with you next Sunday to church. You, by yourself, Carly, you bring 250, and by the way, that's you, Michelle, you bring by yourself, can now, let me tell you, Carly and Michelle sitting right on this front row are two fireballs. They're, they're, they're fireballs, all right? And, they, and they're the kind of people who could kind of go, I, I'm going to bring some people to church this week, right? And they could, they, we might look at Carly and Michelle and go, they can do it. 
But the, here's, here's the deal. You do the math on that. It was every person. In order to get the whole town brought in, every person brought something close in the math to 250 people with them to church the next Sunday. Now, here's the interesting thing. Where are they going to put all those people? All right? They can't go in the church. They won't fit in the church. So scholars believe that when they showed up, they had to move from the synagogue over to what would have been the amphitheater, the biggest venue in the entire city. It'd be like Sanford Stadium, all right? All of a sudden, they had to get all those people into the biggest venue, and they believed the biggest venue could only hold about 10,000 people. The amphitheater. And Paul begins to share the same message that Jesus is alive and that if you simply believe in the resurrected Jesus, you can be made good and right and whole. And two things happen. What's interesting, I, I can't read it all for you, but two things happen. And you can read it. You can kind of roll through the rest of the scripture yourself. First of all, the Bible says some people got mad about it. And I, I will just take a minute, if you got your Bible in front of you, I, I would invite you to look with me at verse 45. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but verse 45 simply says this. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Now, what, why did they do that? Because all of a sudden, this guy comes into town, everybody wants to come to church. Why didn't they want to come to church before that, right? And they might be sitting in my seat, you know, or who are these people anyway? And they didn't like it, which is crazy, I know. I'm glad we don't have that kind of church, by the way. If we had the whole city show up, we'd be like, yeah, come on in, baby, you know? You know, I- I'm sure, right? Nod your head. I'm sure you wouldn't be upset if somebody got your seat. Right, Evelyn? Right? That's, yeah, we can get upset, right? We'd love to have those people in. Here, here's the second thing that happened, though. Look with me real quickly. I think it's uh, verse 49. What happened after all the, almost the whole town gathered? The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So God's word is like wildfire. It spreads through the whole region. But watch this, verse 50. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them, and they went to Iconium. What's amazing is the religious people are missing the boat. And all the other people are coming to Christ. And, and the good news is spreading throughout the region. This is phenomenal, guys. If you get this picture of what it would be like for God to do such a phenomenal work in people's lives like yours and mine, where we begin to invite other people to come and join us and hear this message to the tune of reaching a whole city, that's phenomenal. And I was, I, was, I, was, I was getting this, I was reading this scripture this week, I was putting it in my heart, and, and what I really got out of it was, what if you just could get this, there was a spirit-led, spirit-driven urgency from when they left church one day to go out and tell as many people as they could before the next week so that everybody, as many as possible, could come and hear because they didn't know when Paul was going to be gone. And it's, it's this phenomenal understanding that they are compelled to go out and get other people. And I, I put a question there for you in your outline. You see it there? Just a real quick question. And here's the question that I'm wrestling with, and I hope you'll wrestle with over the next three weeks. And I want to challenge you to pray with me over this question in the next three weeks. And, and it's simply this. What is stopping me and you from having that kind of urgency, that kind of compelling to invite people to what we know is true? What, what is stopping us from sharing that good news 
the way that Acts 13 happened, right? I'll say it a little differently. What is stopping us from having an Acts 13 kind of God moment? Because that's a God moment, right? We, we read it. That's a God moment. The whole town shows up. What is stopping you and me from having that kind of moment in our existence where we move from a, well, I might tell you that I'm a part of something pretty good that's life-changing and that's given me, you know, hope and joy and purpose. I, I might, but I may not, you know, uh, pass the ketchup. Uh, you know, what, what, what is going to help us move from that place, this place of, I got to tell somebody, I want to tell you, 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 I want to tell you. For the next three weeks, I want to talk to you about what it really means to try to live an invitational life. What does it look like to know the good news of Jesus and know how he gives peace when we go through turmoil? To know how he gives purpose to waking up tomorrow morning and trying to live with hope and joy? How he gives direction to us when we don't know whether we ought to go left or right? How he talks with us, how he loves us, how he forgives us. What is stopping us from doing that? And here's the goal. God wants you and me to live an Acts 13 invitational life, to be inviting people to the Christ life all the time, because we live in a very hurting world. You know what? A few years ago, I, I had the chance to kind of stop ministry for a year take my family up to Kentucky and work on my doctoral program. I felt like God was calling me to start a brand new church, and it happened to be this church. And for a year, I was part of a doctoral team in Kentucky where we traveled all over the place. We studied a lot, and we learned a lot about what God was doing in the world. Now, one of the things that I was trying to learn during that time was, how do you start a new church? How do you go into a town? Like when I showed up here to Henry County, there wasn't a group of people I had that I already knew. I didn't know anybody here in Henry County. How do you go into a brand new town like this and share with them the idea? And here was the idea that I was going to try to share. There are people who are lost here who don't know about God. <laughs> go back to Acts 13, right? There are people here who are struggling, struggling. They're striving. They're trying to do the right thing, but they really don't know how easy it is that they could believe in the resurrected Jesus and be made good and right and whole. Let's, let's plant a church that reaches those kind of people, that goes after them and shares that good news with them. And so one of the things I began to study was, how do people, watch this, how do people buy into a, an idea and then move from it simply being an idea to one day actually becoming a living, breather, breathing owner of that idea? And you notice those words at the bottom of the page. I actually came across this. Uh, this is actually something that was written by a professor in the, at the University of Chicago back in the 50s, but it has become a paradigm for how people move from a place of an idea to actually a place of ownership. And so I, I, I was studying this, and I actually was having to write a whole doctoral dissertation on this, and what, what was profound to me was it, was it was paradigm shifting for me. It started helping me understand how people move in their thought processes. So, for example, um, one of the first studies I read that this University of Chicago professor wrote was, uh, and, and it kind of dates me based, based on my research, he was writing about how people move from the idea of do you remember, anybody remember caller ID, the little box that had to go next to your phone? Anybody remember that? You remember when caller ID first came out and we would go out and buy these little boxes and plug them up to our phone and we would see? That was revolutionary for us, right? I can actually tell who's on the other end of that line before I answer it. Okay, so I'm doing this research. It's 1999, 2000. And I started studying how people would first, first heard of a caller ID 
And they had the idea, that's their, that word aware. See the word aware? They, they were aware of a new thing on the market. It was like, really? Really? Okay, that's interesting. And then the next word there, let's put up all those words, is they, they begin to ponder. Huh. The pondering is simply this. That's, that's very interesting. I wonder, wonder what that would be like for us to have that, right? And they start thinking about it. And they move from awareness of the idea to that's interesting to a place of pondering. wonder what that would do in our household, you know, that, that caller ID thing. And then they move to a place of value. They start to think to themselves, you know, that I would like that. I'd really like to have that. I, I want that. I'm going to do that. We're going to get one of those. They don't have it yet, but we're going to get one of those caller ID things. I think we're going to do that. I think that would be really something good to have. Maybe we got two phones. I want two of them. I'm going to put them. And they own the value a little bit. But then they move from a place of just having it as an idea that they want. They know they want. They want this thing. Now they move to a place of priority. And they actually go out and spend their money, okay? They go spend their money, and they get a caller ID, all right? And they put it next to their phone. Maybe they spend their money, and they get two of them, and they put it next to their phone. And then they live in this little place of priority for a little while because now they spent their money. They got their caller ID, and then they start, they start liking it, right? They start liking it. I can tell who's calling me until the place where they get to an owner. And then they start telling other people about, you got to get this caller ID. This caller, I'll never forget, I was reading this uh, study uh, while I was doing my doctoral dissertation. And just before that, I had, I had gone through this whole process. I had, I had heard about a caller ID. I had thought, why don't I get one for our house? That would be awesome. I had actually decided this would do that, this and that. I don't have to answer telemarketer calls anymore. And then I went out and bought one for myself for all of our phones in our house and then I started telling my mama about it I said mama you got to get this you got to get this caller she would not go out and you know why because you remember caller ID you had to pay a little four dollar fee every month right so that it would actually read the calls my mom said I ain't paying that four dollars I ain't paying that four dollars you know I said here's the deal mama I, she didn't know it I gave it to her for Christmas she opened it up caller ID I, I went and bought my mama a caller ID, and, and here was the catch, right? I said, now you got to pay for it on your bill every month. I ain't paying for that, but I bought you. My mama, if you go to her house in Augusta, Georgia right now, you'll see the same caller ID that I bought all those years ago. Now, I'm sitting there reading this, and I'm thinking, this is really how an idea works. This week, I got the newest iPhone. All right. Now, if you knew, um, I've been working off an old iPhone that wouldn't last but about 15 minutes with a battery. I mean, I've waited forever to get me an iPhone. The iPhone 4, uh, it's Abby's phone that I've been using forever. I've been waiting for the new iPhone to come. When I heard the new iPhone was coming out, it was just an idea. I wonder what it's going to be like. Apple, they're geniuses, right? They don't, they don't let anybody know everything it's going to be about. But it was just an idea. It was an awareness. And then I started moving to this idea of when's it coming out? I want to know when it's coming out because I, I want to know how much it costs. And then they let the date go, and I started thinking, I've been waiting till Friday, waiting till Friday. I had this idea, I'm going to get us one of those, you know. And I thought to myself, value, I thought to myself, when I do get it, I don't have it yet, but when I do get it, I'm finally going to have a phone that won't have a battery anymore. And I think I want that big one. I think that because I can see it better, and I think I, my fingers are getting like, I can't text that well. I don't know what that's about. Are you, maybe I'm, are you older like me? I don't know. It's, it's the texting. I thought, I'm going to get that big one so texting's a little bit easier. I was kind of owning the value, been waiting for Friday to show up. Friday came, all right? I hadn't spent a dime on it yet. Now it's time to make it a priority. It's going to cost the decision. It's going to cost the contract. It's going to cost some money in order to be able to do it, right? I showed up at the Apple store, and I walked in. I said, I want two of them, one for my wife, one for me, Right? And I walked out of there with the newest thing in the world, you know. Now, for the last few days, I've had a chance to play around with this thing. It's, it's a phone. It's a, it's, 
it's like all the other good phones, you know. I think I'm going to like it. I won't yet own it in a way that I'll tell you to go buy one yet. But you see how this works? See, what I want to tell you was when I showed up here to Henry County and we were trying to reach people, when they first heard the message of the kind of church we were trying to build, it was just an idea. And then it was the idea, hmm, I wonder, wonder whether I should get involved in that idea, you know, that pondering thing. How about, is it me? Should I? Us? Our family? And then it was on to this next one. You know what? Maybe it would be a good thing if we got involved. Maybe that would be good for us to get back in church again. Maybe, you know, maybe my heart should be about reaching God's lost things. But then there's a priority where you, you know, now rubber meets the road. Are you willing to give your time, your energy, your resources to it? Are you really to make, ready to make a priority about it? And then will you own it? And will you invite others to it? Will you be an owner? See, what I want to tell you, when I'm, for the next three weeks, I want to take the Bible and I just want to preach out of the Bible, and I want to heat something up in your life and my life. And it's kind of that Acts 13 thing, that invitational life. What would it mean for me and you to be living the kind of invite life that God has us to live, where every day we are trying to share the good news of what God's done in our life, and we're not doing it with a few people. We are trying to say, God, I want to live that way. And we're not, we're not people living in a where zone. Okay, a where zone says, hmm, yeah, I think that I think church is a good idea. I think Jesus is the Messiah, I, 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 but I'm a little bit afraid to tell people about it. You know, it's an idea right now. We're not living in this zone over here, pondering it. What would it look like for us to move deeper in these zones to where every one of us, every one of us, that day in Acts 13, every one of them was an owner of the good news, and they went out and they reached the whole town and they brought them in. What would that look like? Flip that outline over for a minute. Just wanna, I, want you to, I wanna invite you to go on a little journey with me. Oh, I'm, I, I forgot something. Oh, uh, sorry, one more time. Flip it back over. Can you just look at those words for a minute? Aware, ponder, value, priority, and owner. And I didn't, have, I didn't spend the time to do this, but if I were to do this on, a, on, a, on like a spreadsheet or on a big board up here, what I would do is I would put the first three words kind of all grouped together. And then I would put the last two words further, further away, and I draw a big gap between them, between the words value and the words priority. Because one of the things I learned was it's very easy to become aware of an idea. It's very easy to be able to start pondering that idea for yourself and what the implications of it might be. And it's very easy to say, you know, I think this is a good idea to start owning into the value and thinking this is what I want to do. But when you actually have to move from a step of moving to that place of priority where you're going to now spend your money, you spend your time, you're going to spend your energy, you're going to spend your relationships, you're going to put resources towards this thing, there's a huge gap between, think, hey, hey, there you go, Tom, we got technological people. There's a huge gap between value and priority. Now, this invitational life, this thing about what it would mean to be God. What would stop us from having the urgency and being compelled to see your good news spread through us like we saw it happen in Acts 13? Being aware starts off with this idea. Hmm. You mean Jesus has come. He has made it so that all we have to do is believe in him as the resurrected Lord. And he can make everything good and right. And here's the idea. You mean all of us? Every one of us is supposed to spread this word, not just somebody else. Might be me. Maybe I'm supposed to be spreading the word and inviting people to this. That's the idea. That's aware. Ponder is 
okay, what would that look like? What would it look like for me to start living an invitational life where I, I had people in my workplace and in, in my neighborhood where I was, how could I, how could I do it in a way that would be winsome and I would be telling them about what Jesus has done in my life. It would be me, not somebody else, but would be me. It would be the way that I would tell them that is my way. That's pondering. Value is stepping to the place of going, now, who? Who would I reach out to? Who at my workplace? Who, who is struggling? Who is fighting? Who is, who, is, who is in strife? Who has no joy? Who are the people God's put right around me? God, show me their faces. Take me to those faces. Who would I share that with? I've moved from an idea of, okay, everybody's supposed to do this, to a place of, how would I do it? Now to a place of, and who would I do that with? But there's a big gap between actually now owning into that invitational life and using my words and using my time and using my resources using my relational currency and my integrity with those people to say, hey, can I tell you about what Christ has done in my life? And inviting them to a something, all right? Inviting them to a something. What is that something, Stephen? I, I really don't care. You know, here at Harvest Point, we, 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 we give you uh, guys resources to invite people to stuff all the time. By the way, in your bulletin today is one of those, you know? You got an orange ticket and you got a resource to invite somebody. But it's a totally different thing to say. I think that'd be nice if it's somebody. I hope people invite somebody to live in the value zone. It's a totally different thing to say, you know what? I am going to invite somebody. I am going to invite somebody. And here's who's on my mind, you know? We've got fall festival coming up. You can invite people to that. I'm doing a brand new sermon series that is going to be unlike any sermon series I've ever done, launching in two weeks, inviting somebody to that. We give you lots of ways to invite people. But you know what? It's not about necessarily what you're inviting them to. It's just that you are inviting them. You might be inviting them to a cup of coffee at Starbucks. You might be inviting them just to a few moments around the, the water cooler at the office and just talking to them about Jesus. But the, the big point is, when it becomes a priority, now it's not how will I do it or who will I do it to. It's God. I want to live this invitational life. I want to tell people what you've done for me. I want to invite them to experience the joy I have. And then this owner thing is living in it where you're doing it every day. Every day you're trying. Now, flip that outline over. I want to invite you to, to do a little self-assessment with me. And I, started, I, just, I, I just put down some ideas here. And the ideas that I had were, Lord, help us kind of discover who we are here. As we start this series, right, we're going to start a series on the invitation life. Help us think about and kind of grade ourselves out. I'm going to call it, I wrote down in my notes, I'm going to call this an internal invitational assessment, okay? How are you doing at inviting others. And just do it internally. Um, listen, if you're sitting close to somebody, don't peek on their sheet, all right? Don't you do it. We're at church. Don't cheat, all right? So I, I just want you to go down through this. And, and I've rated them one to five. And you just grade yourself. How are you doing? Are you more of a one or are you more of a five? And so the first one would be kind of that aware zone. And, and for you, you would say that you hold the value of inviting other people to this Christ life and, and to, to the things that God's doing in your life or to, to church functions and the church body. You hold the value of inviting people but emotions like insecurity or discouragement or indifference speak louder. So you want to invite people, but you don't, really, you don't really feel like you do invite people because you get scared or you're a little afraid or the words won't come out right or something, and that's kind of your zone. Where are you at, you know? Now, if you're, if you're the kind of person that's not your deal, go ahead, and, go ahead and chart you out a five on that. I don't have a problem with this, okay? 
I don't let emotions control me. When I feel like God's calling me to invite somebody to something, I invite, or maybe if you do struggle with some emotions, you put yourself as a three or, or yourself as a one, if that's you. But that's an idea. That's just an internal assessment of where do you live in that kind of thing. Are emotions keeping you from really sharing the invitational life? Here's the second one. What we're talking about here is an internal invitational assessment. Look at the sec- second one. I think some people live in this zone, and that's part of the reason they don't experience the Acts 13. You hold the value of inviting people, but you choose to focus your invitation around basically two events a year. So you, you know that there are these people out there that are CEOs. You know, we call them CEOs, Christmas and Easter only. That's when they come to church, all right? And you invite them to Christmas because guess what? The pastor stands up and says, go invite people to Christmas. So I'm going to go invite somebody. You go invite somebody. Or Easter, you know people will come to church. And so you go. Now, if, that's, if, if, you, if, if, that's, if you do more than that, put yourself down as a five. You know, because, or if you're maybe in the middle there, and man, you got number one going on, and you got number two, I still struggle because of the emotions, but I do invite people at Christmas and Easter, maybe that, you'd be a three in there, or maybe if you were one there, you'd say, you know, that's pretty much me, the only time I ever invite somebody is when it is Christmas or it's Easter, I don't invite them to other things, you know. Look at this third one. You hold the value of inviting people, you've overcome a lot of the emotions, you invite them to Christmas and Easter. That's regularly. You're going to do that. That's kind of a given. But you also invite people to any moments where we have some new series, and you even try to follow up with them, and you, you invite them to take next steps in their, in their faith. You know, If you hear about somebody, that you, you kind of take the initiative there, and you say, hey, have you, are, are you part of a church? Or you know, and you start trying to take next steps with them. Are, are you in that place? That's a place, I think, of value, you know, where you're saying this is a good thing, and you're actually owning into a little bit more. Where would you be? One, two, three, four, five? Now, look at this next one. And this is, I think if, you're, if we're ever going to see Acts 13 happen and really live in this invitational life ourselves, we've got to move into these last two. You hold the value of inviting people, but you see your invitation. Some of us are this way. You see your invitation is very strategic. You're focusing on eight to ten people. You're praying for them. You're regularly reaching out to them and trying to share your faith with them. You're trying to lead them to Christ. Those first things, you kind of already conquered. Emotions, not a big deal to you. I mean, Jesus is on your lips, and you're trying to live the invitational life. You, you're doing more than Christmas and Easter. You're doing, you're doing the series. You're doing Wednesday nights. You're doing, you know, you have a youth. Get them, get them. You know, you're trying to plug them in. You're trying to help people. You're inviting people. But there, the way you do it is there's about eight to ten people that you could name today. You know you're at this level. If you today could name eight to ten people that you are regularly talking with God about. You can, you, in your mind right now, you can see their faces. And to you, you're asking God to help you win those eight to ten people. I think if you're there, then you're actually kind of, you've made this big gap step from being from a place of value now to a place of priority where you, this is big to you. These eight to ten people. Okay, Carly, okay, Michelle, might not be 250 people, right? But it's like, these eight to ten people, God's put these people in my heart, and I, I'm bringing these people before God. I am trying to actively see them come to Christ. Or how about that last step? What I would call an owner. And the owner, this is kind of what I wrote, wrote down for you. You hold the value of inviting people, and your whole life is driven by seeing lives transform. You're, you're constantly begging God to show you and to lead you to a person, 
to try to winsomely invite them to the new life that you have in Christ. Every day. Every day. Not little series moments, not from time to time. Every day you're talking with God about who God's put around you that you could invite to this Christ life. And you're talking to him every day. Now, here's the idea that I have. The way that you become an Acts 13 movement, the way that you see God's urgency fall on us like like we saw happen in Acts 13, is everybody becomes an owner. Now, dream with me for a minute, okay? Dream with me. Hey, Randall, dream with me for a minute. You with me? I want you to dream this. Dream of being a part of a church where everybody not a few. Everybody is, is no longer, we're dreaming, right? So let's dream. Everybody's no longer inhibited by their fears or their emotions, you know? They're not afraid to talk about Jesus. What if everybody was that way? All right? And what if, dream with me, what if everybody every day was talking with God about who God's put right around them? And they weren't just saying, I'm going to invite somebody when Stephen starts the next series or Oh, man, this is kind of cool. They made this thing for me. I'll go invite somebody now. What if every day they were inviting people to the Jesus life? And, and it was like, man, everybody in the church, go back to John Wesley, was on fire. And they were saying, listen, you got to know what Jesus has done for me. And they were burning so much, they were sharing it with everybody they could. And they were talking with God, God, lead me to people today. Let me share. See, what I'm talking about here, Randall, is now we're dreaming of a church where everybody is owners and everybody is living this invitational life where we all have this urgency and this passion because we live in a fallen, dying world and there's so many people around us. And we know we've been given the good news. We've been given the good news. Somebody last week, I should have played this video, but I thought the Holy Spirit's calling me to share it now, and I didn't know it before now. Somebody shot me a video this last week of, uh, do you know who Penn and Teller are? The guys, I think they do a Vegas show or something. Penn is this giant, black-haired, long-haired kind of guy. He's the mouth of the magic show. Teller is the quiet guy who never says words. I didn't know this, but somebody shot me a video of Penn. He did a little blog. He's literally sitting in his, in, in his uh, dressing room. He looks like he's... His eyes look bloodshot. He looks like he's been drinking all night long. And Penn is just talking about his atheism. He's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. But after the show, after one of his shows, he noticed that a guy was standing off to the side. He said he's a well, well-dressed guy. He said he's about my age. And he said after he had greeted all these other people, that guy made his way up. He complimented him with some nice words about the show. He said he'd seen his show before. This is his third time seeing his show. He reached out and he said, I just felt like I wanted to give you something. Can I give you a gift? And Penn said, sure, which people do all the time. And the guy handed him a, a little New Testament Bible. And inside that New Testament Bible was just a, you know, it was very nice meeting you today. Thank you for allowing me to give you this gift. And that little blog, I'm watching that video, and that little blog, Penn says these words. And I don't know this guy. I don't know Penn from from. You know, he's just one of these guys you see on the celebrity media, you know. Penn said, listen, he knew I was an atheist. He knew I was an atheist. But the thing about it was, he was real. And he said, I have 
I have profound respect for people who are real. And though I don't believe what he believes about Jesus, this is what, I'm, I'm just telling you Penn's words. He said, though I don't believe what he believes about Jesus, the fact that he came to me and he told me what he believed about Jesus, even in very short words and just gave me a gift, he said, I respect that. Because, listen, he was real. He said he wasn't a kook guy. He wasn't, he wasn't some insane guy. Those were his words. He wasn't insane. He was trying to legitimately share with me what he believes has brought him life. And then he said these words. It's kind of why I wish, I, I invite you to maybe try to find this blog out there. He said these words. He said, and I would say to every Christian out there, every person who calls himself a Christian, if you believe you have the truth for eternal life and you don't share it with others, you're an evil person. This atheist is telling Christians that they're an evil person if they have the cure to the sins of the world and they won't share it? He closes out his blog by saying, I'm still an atheist. But whoever you are, man who gave me this little Bible, I respect you. And I appreciate you. And I sat there and watched that little thing and I thought, man. I'll be honest with you. I felt convicted. I felt like, man, I try to live this invitational Christian life, but there are days go by where, where I am not living in that Acts 13 zone. And here's a guy that I think probably is. Don't know him from Adam. Don't know what his face looks like. Know nothing more than he was standing off this side. But I want to be like that guy. I want to be trying to share everything I can with people who are around me who are just dying, dying. And they may not even know they're dying. Got your pen. I just want to close with a couple last thoughts. I didn't put them in your outline, but they're my challenge today from God's Word. Would you write down two things as we close today? And, and I told you during this series, I want you to wrestle with me and I want you to pray with me about something, okay? Here's, where the, here's the wrestle part, okay? Here's the wrestle part. The first one is this. Write this one down. I asked Tom to put it up on the screen. I'm just going to write it in a blank spot on your outline somewhere. Wrestle with this. Pray over it. The first one is this. Be willing be open, be strategic, be moving forward, be active with me in the next three weeks towards closing this gap between, this, uh, between an, the, the value to the place of priority to become an owner, okay, of this invitational life. If you would say, I'm, I'm over here, you know, I'm way back here and I'm just pondering, or if you'd say, I'm in the value place, but I'm really not, I'm really, not really owning in this thing yet, I want to I challenge you with me. Realize what God has done for you. Move towards closing that gap, and, and you're going to say, I'm not, I am going to live this invitational life. It's not going to be a good idea for me anymore. I'm going to move into this place of inviting people every day of my life to the Jesus life. Close the gap. That's what I want you to wrestle with me, with me over the next three weeks. Pray about it. Close the gap to become an owner of this invitational life where every day you're trying to do this. Second thing, I said two things, right? This is what I want you to wrestle with. Pray about it with me. First, second one, I want you to focus in your times of talking with God and in our times of meeting together like this, I want you to focus on the faces and on the spaces that God has around you. I'm going to say that again. I want you to focus on the faces and the spaces 
that God has put right around you. Because God, listen, God has strategically put people around you that he is after. And he wants to use you to invite them to the Christian life. He wants to use you to invite them to the life in Christ. But I want to ask you to pray with me and wrestle with some faces and some spaces. Why don't you do that right now? Why don't you think of some people, maybe at your work or in your family, who you know need Jesus? What's that face look like? How about the space, the space where you live, that neighborhood? Or how about that space where you work? Or how about that space where you play? It might be for one of you, the golf course, another one of you for the gym, another one of you, you know, your motorcycle. How about the space? We're talk- what are the faces? What are the spaces? That God has put right around you. And he wants to use you to invite them to the Christ life. Stephen, how do I do that? We'll come back next week. I'll tell you how to do it next week, okay? I'll tell you next week. But this week, simple this. Two things. Holy Spirit, help us close the gap towards wherever we are to really owning the invitation of life. Reveal to me faces and spaces where you want me to be inviting people to this life that is so much to me. I think God's got a good work that he wants to do through us. We've got to own it. And we've got to press in, press in and push into it and see God do it. Now, you know what? I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to have a time of giving through our offering. But before I do that, I would be so wrong today, so wrong, if I didn't give you a chance to respond to this invitational life. You know, let me say it a little differently. I'd like to say it straight from the Scripture. If you're here today and the light bulb has gone off for you and you've thought to yourself, you know what? I've been working, I've been stressing, I've been pushing, I've been performing. But I read the screen today, and you know what? The screen said simply this. All I've got to do is believe in the resurrected Jesus, and I can be made good and right and whole. If like me sitting in that little house in young life, hearing that message that night, the light bulb went off for me. If you came to church today and that light bulb went off for you today, and, and you might have heard it before, but all of a sudden it makes sense to you. Listen, today is the day. Today is the day for you just to say, God, I believe. <laughs> I believe. Oh, I believe, Lord. And my life's been a mess. But today I believe. Would you make me, by my belief, in your resurrected power, good with you and right with you? Would you make me whole? It'll change your life. And how about this one? It'll change your family tree. It'll change your children and your grandchildren. It makes all the difference in eternity. I want to pray for you. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that you loved us so much, Jesus. You left heaven to come to earth to show us the way. 
And I thank you, Jesus, that you made it very simple. It's just very simple. All we have to do is trust and believe. Trust and believe that the God of the universe is in love with us, that you want to wash away all our wrongdoings. And you don't want it to be on our performance. You just want it to be in our trust of you, our trust fall towards you. And so today, Jesus, we trust you. We believe in you. We believe in the resurrected Jesus, the one who is who can change everything for us and give us joy and hope and guidance and wash away our sin. Do that for us today, Jesus, and make us good, good with you. Make us right and make us whole. We make us whole, God. Fill the empty spots, fill the hungerings that we have. Fill us to overflowing with life, new life, not that old dead life. Make us a new creation in Jesus today. Lord, I ask you, oh, birth your life in us today, Jesus. You're so good to us. You're so good to us. Lord, I pray that somebody prayed that prayer today, and in a cosmic way, you brought them to death, to life, and you wrote their name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and eternal, their eternal destiny, their eternal future was changed today. I pray that in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would open up our minds and open up our hearts and give us a purposefulness and an urgency, a compelling nature about us to say, God, I know you want me to be inviting others. I know it. Would you reveal to me faces? Faces, faces, faces that you want me to be reaching out and inviting to this Christ life you've given to me? And God, would you reveal to me spaces? spaces that you brought me to that you want to reach people in that place because you want to use me oh God do a good work in our church do our good work in us Lord I pray for tonight Noah Cleveland's going to set up all his music and he's going to bring ministry to this place and I just pray God you'd let the Holy Spirit fall in this place let ministry happen and let broken hearts be made whole let people who have no hope find hope and Lord, let somebody who's been struggling with, with, with their, their level of energy or their level of purpose, give it to them, God. Give it to them. You're so good. Lord, in the next few minutes, as we get to continue and worship through our giving, would you remind us that, Lord, we give and we sow, we sow our seed, and then we just release it. We ask for you to then send it out to do good works in advancing your kingdom. And Lord, in the next few minutes as we give of our tithes and our offerings, we sow it out so that your kingdom would be expanded. We sow it out in the name of Jesus. Thank you.